Let me begin by saying this. Last week, the sermon was called Released from the Law. This week, it's called Released from the Law, uh, part two. We're learning what it means for Jesus to help us with our legal problems. And you and I have legal problems in heaven that we can't get out of. There was a... um, There was a Facebook post that went viral earlier this week when someone posted, hey, Google your birthday followed by the words Florida man. How many of you saw that on Facebook this week? So you just type in your birthday, so for me it's October 22nd, and then Florida man, and all of these hilarious posts came up of Florida men getting into trouble with the law or just being boneheads. So for example... Florida man, July 24th, Florida man serves hot dog to alligator from his mouth. Another date, identical twin Florida men arrested after getting into brick fight. Another date, pancake prank gets Florida man in trouble for stopping traffic. Another one, Florida man arrested for kicking two swans in the head while practicing karate. Well, when I heard these, I had to do it, right? So I typed in my date, and I googled Florida man, October 22nd. October 22nd, Florida man attacks mom with sausages. What? So then Lauren heard this, and she had to do it. So she typed in her birthday and googled Florida man, and hers said, Florida man convinced to end standoff after offered slice of pizza. You... If you just type in your birthday in Florida, man, it comes up with these headlines of crazy things that have happened in the past of people getting in trouble with the law. And, they're, they're, and there's like hundreds of these posts out there, and people are like, what's with these Florida men getting in trouble? Now, the, the point is this. There is no end to people getting in trouble with the law. They're inventing new ways every day to get in trouble with the law. And take that, take that like category of a guy who's doing something boneheaded and getting in trouble with the law, and guess what? That's you and me. We have huge legal problems in God's court of law, and Jesus is the only one who can get us out of them. So we're going to open our Bibles up to Romans chapter 7, verse 7, and we are going to continue in this series, which is called Nail It Down. The idea of Romans Nail It Down is a look back to the Reformation, where Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation uh, right? And he nailed his theses to the, to the castle church door. And, 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 but what lit that fire in his heart? The book of Romans. He was reading the book of Romans and it converted him. And so we're commemorating the Reformation and we're also nailing down our beliefs on key spiritual issues. So in Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 7, that's where we're going to be. Let's pray and then we'll see what God has for us today. Oh, Father in heaven, we open our hearts to you. We pray that you would show us your word, show us your will, Show us your ways. We pray that you would enable us, Lord, to know you and to fear you and to love you more. We just pray that your word would be everything you've promised here. We pray that it would be the fire that consumes what is not holy. We pray that it would be, uh, Lord, the sword that pierces, dividing between soul and spirit. We pray that it would be the hammer that breaks the rock, Lord. We just pray that your word would go to work within us, and we invite that right now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in Romans chapter... 7, verse 7, it goes on to say this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, 
few introductory terms here. The Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee, knows his Bible, the Old Testament. So when he uses the word law here, we learned last week that that focuses in on the law of Moses. Now that usually just means the, the Ten Commandments as commemorated in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. But it could just be like slang for the whole Old Testament. So when he says law, that's kind of what he means. What he's trying to help uh, this church in Rome figure out is a lot of people were raised on the Old Testament and now they've got this Jesus thing and they're not sure how to move from one to the other. So the Jews were accusing the Christians of saying, you're getting rid of Moses, aren't you? You're ripping up the Old Testament, aren't you? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Let me show you how the law goes together with the grace of the Lord Jesus. So he goes on to say this, uh, verse 9, For I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Jot this down. Number one, agree that the Bible is holy, righteous, and good. If you want to understand how God's law affects you in this New Testament era, hey, agree that the Bible is holy, righteous, and good. Paul's like, yeah, it wasn't broken, it wasn't bad, it wasn't, it's not obsolete, right? It's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. Now, can you imagine if what was really going on in the first century is Paul was ripping up the Old Testament and saying, throw that out, right? And, and here's a new Bible, it's the New Testament, a lot of Christians are confused about how this works. They think, well, God was really angry in the Old Testament. He got really nice in the New. That's not the way it is. All right, you, you read the book of Revelation, there's a whole lot of angry God coming back. Okay, uh, So what's really important is not seeing the New Testament as a replacement of the Old, but seeing the New Testament as the fulfillment of the Old. And when it comes to the law, there were a lot of skittish Jewish people who are like, he, he's getting rid of Moses. And, and Paul's like, no, that's, that's not what's happening. So he's clearing up our understanding of, of the law. And we have to begin by agreeing that it was holy, it is righteous, and it was good. Now Paul starts talking about, in verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. Then the law came. When the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. So what does this actually mean? Well, he's describing what happens when a person encounters the law of God. He's doing it from a Jewish perspective. So there he is, you know, growing up, and he encounters what the law says. Do not covet, which is one of the commandments. Right? Do not covet. Okay, I shouldn't want things that aren't righteously mine. Okay, check. And then he suddenly does it. Oh, wait a minute. I was just told not to do that, but I'm still doing it. He's narrating what it feels like when you learn right and wrong in the Bible, and you're still not doing it correctly. It's not that the law, the law is wrong. It's not, well, what's with that rule? Making it hard for me. No, the rule's not the problem. The problem lies somewhere else. Um, so what does the law actually do? What does the Bible actually do? Jot this down. It defines and reveals my sin. It defines and reveals my sin. He says, I would not have known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have. God has to reveal his moral will or we can't know. This speaks to what Christians believe about the nature of truth. We believe that truth is absolute. We don't believe that truth, this is really a big deal if you've never heard this before, but today in our world, people treat truth as Legos. You just get to grab the pieces and assemble it however you want, and then that's your truth. And we disagree with that. The Bible says that truth is handed down to us from heaven. 
It's absolute, and it's binding on us. And therefore, when we take what God has handed down and disassemble it and then reassemble it however we want, we're breaking God's moral law. Now, that's binding on every man, woman, and child who's ever lived in every nation. So it's not just a question of what truth am I inventing. The question is, what am I doing with what God has constructed and handed down to me? It defines and reveals my sin. And he's narrating it here in an artistic way. He's not, now, even though this book is full of theology, in this section here, he's getting a little artsy. All right? He's not writing it as if, here's the five principles of sin you need to know about. He's, it's not like a course. He's narrating it in kind of an artistic way. So what he says here is, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He's narrating it as if sin is this like, this like black gnome in your heart that's causing all sorts of trouble. Right? Now, is that really what we believe? No. Okay, there's not this little dark elf in your heart running around, pushing buttons, making you sin. But he's talking about it as if there's this creature, this like gremlin, loose in your heart who's causing all sorts of trouble. Okay, now, just to be clear, he's not doing that to say that sin is something other than you. You're doing it. All right? You're doing it. I'm doing it. But he's narrating it in a way so that he can help us understand what's going on inside of us better. So, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Basically what he's doing here is this. There you are. And for the Jewish boy, he was living, having maybe not been properly instructed in the law yet. He didn't know everything that the Old Testament said. That's what he means when he says, I was alive apart from the commandment. Some of you maybe grew up outside the church. You, you were kind of alive apart from God's law. You didn't quite know it, okay? And then what happens? Well, up walks up God's word. Somehow you learned it. Hello, I'm law. Hello, law. I'm here to tell you God's will, okay? And then, boom, law gives you the sheet with all the rules. And you're like, well, now I've got the rules. Well, then it says sin springs to life. It maybe comes out of the dark shadows or even jumps up out of a tomb or whatever. Sin is suddenly right there on you the moment you're holding the law. Jumps out. Hello, I'm sin. Oh, hello, sin. I'm meeting all sorts of new friends today. Let me see that list. Then sin starts going through the list. Mm, yeah, you shouldn't desire that. Covetousness, huh? You don't want that. You don't want that. Don't even look at that. You really don't want that, or do you? And you're like, well, I'm not supposed to. Yeah, but you really kind of want it. So there goes the narration, and sin starts chiseling away at what the law gave you, and then sin deceives you. You know, I can help you get that if you want. Okay, that sounds fun. Here, put these wristbands on. And then you're like, these look like handcuffs. Just put them on. I'll take you where you want to go. And then suddenly we're following sin, wearing handcuffs, even though we had the law. Now, what's funny is Paul narrates this 2,000 years ago, and I think you know what he's talking about. Am I right? I think you know exactly what he's talking about. There was, I heard the rules. I wanted to do them. I didn't do them. Then I'm trapped doing the wrong. I think that cycle speaks to every person in this room. So we have to agree that the Bible is holy, righteous, and good. It defines and reveals our sin. And sin here is personified as a murderer. And what is his weapon of choice to kill us? 
the law. This doesn't make sense at all. So how many of you played Clue growing up? Did you play Clue, right? And then all, you're trying to figure out who, who's the murderer, right? Well, I'll give you the answer. It was sin with the law in the heart. <gasps> I guess that. Sin, weapon, the law in the heart, which shows that we're tempted to sin, and though we know the law, we transgress it, and therefore we die. Anyway, this is not meant to be exact theology. This is meant to be a very artistic way of narrating for you what happens when you come into contact with God's law. You don't do it. It gets worse, and eventually you die. And that's clear. Jot this down. Agree that the Bible is holy, righteous, and good. It defines and reveals my sin. It also springs from God's nature. It springs from God's nature. These words used to describe it holy, righteous, good. Those are, those are words about God. And therefore, the, the Bible, the Word, the revealed Word of God, reveals the attributes of God. So this is not just a book written by men. The Law of Moses was not just Moses' opinions you know, on life. It, it reflects God's nature. And this is really big. It's not that God has all of these, it's not like God's like this opinionated, you know, radio host up in the sky who's just barking all of these opinions down on us, right? His nature is, is such that the morality we're expected to abide by flows from within him. Why is love right? Because God is love. Why is truth the right way to talk? Because God is true. Right? And God is holy, and the word holy means set apart from all sin, all of it. And therefore, the, the Bible is described, the law is described as holy, righteous, and good. So therefore, the law springs from God's nature. The nature of sin is that even though we sin here with, you know, against people or whatever, sin is not primarily horizontal. Sin is primarily vertical. Every sin is a relational act toward a holy God. And that's the nature of sin. And God designed us to be holy. We were created in His image. You were designed to be holy, set apart entirely from sin. Well, who can do that, right? In this world, how can I make it even a, an hour without sinning? Well, it's so far from what your daily experience holds that you don't think it's natural. But when you look back to creation, Adam and Eve, we were intended to live without sin. That's actually what it means to be human, right? That, that is what it means to be human, to not sin. Right now, we're in kind of the backwaters of what happens when we blow it. And God wants to restore us to his image. How does he do that? Well, he offers us his word after we fell into sin. He offers us his word so that we know the crime of sin when we see it. Otherwise, how could we know? And then what does God do? He gets to work reclaiming what was his, broken people like you and me. And he comes to get us and to bring us back and to restore us. To, to his original specifications. I read a funny fact last week uh, on this like random fact generator, and I'll put it up on the screen. Here's what it says. The very first item sold on eBay ever was a broken laser pointer for $14.83. Astonished, the person contacted the winning bidder and asked if he understood that the laser pointer was broken. You know this is broken, right? Like I put in the details, it was broken. You still want it, right? In his responding email, the buyer explained, I'm a collector of broken laser pointers. <laughs> that started eBay. Wow. 
well, if, some, if somebody's going to buy a broken laser pointer, I'm going to go find stuff that I can sell on eBay. And that's why eBay's amazing now, because people buy your junk, right? They'll bid on it. That's really funny that the first thing ever sold on eBay is a collector who bought a broken laser pen. That reminds me of God, right? God looks down here and he sees a world full of broken people. And he's like, how much? And the answer is his son. And he's like, deal. He would pay the ultimate price to get us back. Don't you know we're broken? I'm a collector of broken people. Don't you love our God? I love our God. It springs from his nature. His law shows the crime of sin, shows our brokenness, and he wants to collect us back. So agree that the Bible is holy, righteous, and good. It springs from his nature. And then jot this down. It bears divine authority. It bears divine authority. It's called the law. When the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So the commandment came promising life, meaning hey, this is the way. If you keep the law, you can live, but we can't keep the law. The Israelites couldn't keep the law, and we can't keep it. So sin sees an opportunity through the commandment, deceives us, and kills us. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So because, I mean, it's called the law, it's called the commandment, and it's authoritative over everyone, and what that means is it bears divine authority. These aren't, they weren't called the Ten Suggestions, right? They're the Ten Commandments. They were written by the finger of God. And so the law bears divine authority. What that means is, really, reading, reading your Bible is reading God's lips. Our doctrine of the Bible is that this book was God-breathed. It came from the very lips of God. There's a whole lot of controversy. People challenge the credibility of the Bible. Well, who knows who wrote that? A bunch of men got together and just made stuff up. And um, Somebody once said the Bible is a book that has dulled many anvils, meaning people have tried to break it and they have failed. And I would just suggest to you that if you doubt the credibility of this book, you really haven't done your homework. This book has withstood the tests of many of the greatest minds in history. People who went at it to break it apart, ended up bowing before it. And so I would just say that if you've got problems with this book, maybe it's time to start asking questions because there are wonderful answers to those questions. And this book, what you'll find is not an invention of man. The Bible says of itself that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit authored this book. and It was written through people, but it was the Word of God. Therefore, it bears divine authority. This is important to know because this is basically God's legal rap sheet of you and me and our sin. And if we don't agree with the charges, we won't be ready for our day in court. And maybe no one's ever told you this, but your day in court is coming. Judgment day is on its way and you're one day closer today than you were yesterday. You will appear before a holy God to give an answer for your deeds in the body. Are you ready for that moment? It bears divine authority. George Guthrie says this, The great sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, serves as our guide in following Christ through the inner corridors of the heart. This confrontation by God's living, piercing Word begins and must be a trademark of the true life of faith. See, he describes that if you're a follower of Christ, it'll show in the confrontation you have with this book. That's where it all begins. So number one, agree that the Bible is holy, righteous, and good. It defines and reveals my sin, springs from God's nature, and bears divine authority. Number two, agree that sin is 
dot, dot, dot. There's some things we need to agree about sin. So we have to agree about God's word and we have to agree about sin. Agree that sin is, and let's read on in verse 13. It says, does that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. So sin grabs the law, stabs you through the heart, and you die. Well, did did the law do that? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He describes here the process of how sin hijacks the heart and leads us into further depravity. So there's some things we have to agree about sin here. Sin is a problem we have. Our whole species has a problem with sin. F.W. Borum says this, Sin is a revolt from the divine authority. It is the anarchy of the soul. The anarchy of the soul. This narrates internal struggles between you and sin. And and Paul, a former Pharisee, says, I don't know why I keep doing it. I don't want to do it. I hear the law and know that's right, but then I do it again. Right? Do you ever feel that way? Our daughter, Ellie, when she was much younger, got in trouble. She hurt her sister again. And we were like, why did you do that again? And she goes, I don't know, Satan again. (laughs) Pastor's kid. She thinks, she, she thinks that's going to get her out of trouble. Satan, again. We're like, that's not going to get you out of it. But she narrated what everybody feels like. Why did I do that? Again. Why did I do that? Again. Augustine said this about his conversion so long ago. I was bound not by an iron imposed by anyone else, but by the iron of my own choice. The enemy had a grip on my will and so made a chain for me to hold me a prisoner the consequence of a distorted will is passion by servitude to passion habit is formed and habit to which there is no resistance becomes a compulsion by these links as it were connected one to another hence my term a chain a harsh bondage held me under restraint it's amazing how hundreds of years ago he's talking about me How do you know what it feels like to be me? And even before that, the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. This is what it means to be human. We get all chained up in sin, even if we know it's wrong. So there's some things we have to agree about sin. Agree that sin is what? Well, in verse 13, what does it say? In verse 13, it says, Sin producing death in me. Jot this down. Sin is deadly. Sin produces death. It leads to death. It promises life, but it leads to death. Oh, lots of promises on the front end. Oh, it's going to be amazing if you follow me. And then death on the back end. All sin produces physical, mental, and emotional suffering, relational strain, and destruction. All sin also produces 
spiritual death. Spiritual death. That means we forfeit life lived forever with God because sin opposes God's presence. And the Bible is saying here that the sin problem in your heart is more out of control than you know. When you, and this is just one commandment Paul's talking about, covetousness, right? Let's take that one with, with us through the week. All right, I'm not allowed to covet. I'm not allowed to want things that kind of cross the line. I shouldn't really lust after an abundance. And then off you go to Kohl's. How, <laughs> what? We're such a materialistic nation. I don't even know if we understand what the word covetousness means or what it means to cross over into sin with what we want or how we get it. We're just so numb and dead to that one command, right? We just, he says, do not covet, and we just kind of blink. Like, what does that mean, and how do I live that way? Uh, and that's just one commandment. And the Bible can go area to area, diagnosing different problems in our heart that we didn't even know were there. I saw a video this last week that said, uh, Texas Home uh, calls out a uh, company that gets rid of snakes. Texas Home calls company because they said there's a snake under their house. Well, this company came out and, and got in the crawl space and check out what they found. See, there's a baby there, one there, there's one right in front of me here, there's one up top right there. Got it? They found 48 rattlesnakes. Burn it down, right? Burn, burn it down. Children, get your toys. We are walking away. Mushroom cloud in the distance. I mean, how do you go back in? How many got into the house? Uh, 48. So when you read the Bible, this is what happens in your heart, Okay. The more you read the Bible, the more it gets in there and it starts going, it holds up the snakes, and it's like, oh, how did, how did that get in there? Oh, well, you might as well get that out of there, and then guess what? It crawls back in, and we still sin. We are sinful and broken beyond repair, and sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. It's easy to forget just how many sins can fill our heart. List of common sins in the Bible come in different categories. Sins of the mind, lustful fantasies, violent thoughts, negative thoughts. Sins of the heart, bitterness, fear of man, indifference, lack of love, holding grudges. Sins of the wallet, flaunting materialism, stealing, foolish stewardship, not giving to God's work. Sins of the mouth, abusive speech, vulgarity, complaining, faithless worrying. Sins with food, drink, and substances, addiction, alcoholism, substance abuse, chronic lack of self-control. Sins of the ears and eyes, listening to gossip, indulging in sensual, violent, blasphemous, vulgar media. Sins of work and rest, workaholic, sloth, failure to provide for your family. We can sin in different places, home, work, church, school, on recreation, travel far from home. We can sin with our soul, refusing to worship Christ, refusing to work for Him, refusing to witness for Him. That's a short list. And each one of those has a rattle. And each one of those can kill us. Each one of them, because there's no sin allowed in heaven with the holy God. Hey, there's a lot of gravity what I'm saying right now. But listen, 
If you have not agreed with the Bible that your sin is fatal, stage four, terminal spiritual cancer. If you're still playing with it or thinking somehow when you stand before a holy God, he's going to be like, sure, come on in. Please correct that understanding right now. Right? You would be safer if you crawled into that crawl space and started playing with the snakes than you would be appearing before a holy God with your heart full of sin. Hear the warning. Agree that sin is deadly. Jot this down. Agree that sin is deceptive. Deceptive. It says, sin deceived me. Sin deceived me. Right? Tricked me. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I, I do not do. He just narrates this whole thing. I keep getting tricked, right? It says in verse 11, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Many of us don't know the basic anatomy of sin, and this is why we keep falling for it. So let me give you the basic anatomy of sin. Need, bait, disguise, trap. All right, need, which means, and if you have never heard this, this could revolutionize your life. Sin always comes to meet a real need you have. But I'm lonely, but I'm nervous, but I'm hungry, but I'm mad. But you will have a real need when sin comes to tempt you. And if all you're saying is, but I have this need, but I have this need, you're not seeing the anatomy of sin. Need. Yes, your need doesn't mean you have to sin to meet that need. What else was I supposed to do? There are plenty of other things. Need, and then once the need is there, then comes the bait. Here's the way out. Here's the quick way. Here's the short way. Here's the blow up at your children. Just get that need met right now and get your kids under control. Need, bait, bait, bait. There's a hook right in front of you with a juicy worm on it. Bait, but it doesn't look like that. It looks like the best thing ever. Bait. And then many people miss this next important part, disguise. Disguise. It will look appealing. It will, it will seem good. You can even rationalize it to those around you. All right? To those around you, often the mask is pretty lame. The mask that sin wears is pretty lame. Everyone else is like, don't you see what that's going to do? No, it's amazing. We don't see it because there's a disguise. Need, bait, disguise, trap. Then you're stuck then you're stuck and you can't get out. If there's a pattern in your life where you're like, I have a need. That looks juicy. I really don't see how this is going to go wrong. Ow! Next week, I have a need. That looks juicy. I don't think it'll go wrong again. Ow! You're stuck. You keep going through the cycle. And here's the thing. I'm not talking to you as somebody who doesn't go through the cycle. I'm talking to you as somebody who does the same exact thing. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I do it too. We all do it. Need, bait, disguise, ow. Why did I do that again? Welcome to humanity. How do we get out of it? What hope is there? Well, we have to admit the truth about sin. Sin is deadly. Sin is deceptive. Deceptive. There's deception in greed, in lust, in lying. In the party life, giving full vent to your anger, there's deception. You think it will make you happy. You think it will make you safe. You think it will give you more control over your life. And in the end, you're trapped. Jot this down. Sin is dominant. Deadly, deceptive, and dominant. 
What Paul narrates in verse 14 on is him getting owned time and time again. I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the thing that I hate. I want to do what I want. I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now I have to get into some theology here to make sure that you know what he is saying and what he isn't saying. When he says things like sin sprang to life, he's not saying that he was sinless and then the law came and then he became sinful. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, Just be clear on that. You're not innocent as a little one and then you break your first rule and you become guilty. We're sinful from birth. So just understand, Paul you know, clearly in other places affirms the doctrine of original sin. But in his artistic way of describing this whole sin's coming to kill me, we, we could lose sight of clear theology. He's not saying that I wasn't sinful and then I was. He's saying I'm sinful. He's describing here, though, how sin and him relate once the law is introduced. He says, I was sold under sin, which means he's fighting a losing battle. Do you feel like your best efforts have failed to change? This means the ugly energy of sin overpowers us and commands us. We do not control it. It controls us. Now, when he says, it's not me, it's sin in me, again, it's not like this little dark gnome is in there pulling the levers. It is you, but it's it's you bound up in this ugly energy of willfulness against God. He's describing it as if there is this dark gnome who's grabbed your, you know, it's that bad, you're possessed by a gremlin. But that's all an artistic way of telling you how bad your heart has really gotten. The Bible is doing an MRI here and showing you how bad the sin is. Now, scholars wrestle with what Paul is describing here. Is he telling his story? Like, I, you know, when he's like, I wrestle with sin, then I fit. Is he telling his story? Is he actually looking back to Adam and telling Adam's story? Because it actually, there's a lot of parallel when he's narrating what's happening. Sin deceived me and I fell. There's a lot of parallelism here between Adam and Paul. So is he kind of reaching back to creation? Or is he telling Israel's story? Like when Israel got the law of Moses and then they were deceived and they sinned? Or is he telling the story of all of us and making a common narrative of humanity? Well, here's what I think. He's relating the problem of an individual while he's recounting the problem of a nation while he's reflecting the problem of a race. I'll say that again all at once. He's relating the problem of an individual while recounting the problem of a nation while reflecting the problem of a race. So he is telling the story of himself and his nation and his race. He's doing it very creatively. Also, people disagree here. Is he talking about the struggle of Christians or the struggle of non-Christians? So when he says here, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. You know, so now it's no longer I do it, but sin that dwells within me. Wait a minute, he can't be talking about a Christian there because, you know, sin has been, you know, we're, we're forgiven for our sins. So there's a big debate over who he's talking about. Scholars have spilled a lot of ink, right? The reason is... Because when Christians read this, they're like, that sounds like me, right? That sounds like me. And when non-Christians read that, they're like, that sounds like me. So what I would say is this. Paul describes here a pattern of defeat at the hands of sin. It is a pattern of defeat. A pattern of defeat at the hands of sin. And this is the rule for the lost and the exception for the saints. So if you read this and you're like, that's my life, never known any different, you're probably not saved. But if you read that and you're like, 
those are my bad days, those are my bad months or weeks, you know, but God has given me a lot of victory, then you're probably saved. But if you're caught up in a pattern of defeat to sin and you have never known extended seasons of victory, then you're probably bound up in sin and not saved. Sin is dominant. Sin is dominant. So there's a reverse gospel here talked about where, where it sounds like we're indwelled by the power of sin rather than God, and yet we know better and desire better and we're made for more. That leads us to number three. Agree that Jesus must deliver you. Agree that the Bible is holy, righteous, and good. Agree that sin is deadly, deceptive, and dominant. Agree that Jesus must deliver you. Do you agree that you need a Savior? In verse 21, it says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What that means is the law can't save us. Knowing the rules can't save us. If on, on Judgment Day you're planning to get in front of the Lord and say, uh, here's all the rules I kept, so let me in. You don't understand the point of the law. The law was given to condemn us, to show us our crimes. It can't save us. It says in verse 24, wretched man that I am. This guy, Paul was one of the most religious guys of his time. And he's like, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the conclusion. Then he says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Hey, do you agree that Jesus must deliver you? Do you agree? When the Bible describes you as being trapped by sin, imprisoned by sin, deceived by sin, do you understand that you have legal trouble in God's court of law that only Christ can solve? Here's a picture of an inmate I showed last week. And if you don't agree that that is what God sees when he sees you, you're in for a huge surprise when you pass on from this life to the next, which could happen sooner than you think. But Jesus came not to, not to tell you how horrible you are, but to tell you how big your problem is, and then he wanted to solve it. He wants to solve it. Jot this down. Admit that you're captive to the law of sin. Admit that you're captive to the law of sin. It says there's a war making me captive, verse 23, to the law of sin. Paul respected the law, studied the law, taught the law, gave his life for the law, was zealous for the law, and even he couldn't be rescued by it. He said, I was owned by sin. I was mastered by sin. I was one big hypocrite. In the Valley Vision prayer book, it describes the human condition by saying this, all my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. Grant me grace to bear thy will without repining, and delight to be not only chiseled, squared, or fashioned, but separated from the old rock where I have been embedded so long, and lifted from the quarry to the upper air where I may be built in Christ forever. That expresses the longing of a person who wants to be saved. Don't, don't just clean spots up, Lord. Don't just let me keep most of my sin. Pick me up out of this quarry that I've been stuck in and, and, and unite me to Christ. Hey, have you admitted that you are a captive to the law of sin and only Jesus can rescue you? Jot this down. Cry out for Jesus to free you. This is the conclusion. Cry out for Jesus to free you. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through the Jesus Christ our Lord. 
This is the conclusion. I need to be delivered because sin lives in me and only he can set me free. I like what David Bruskis says. Listen, maybe you've lived all of your life with people hitting you over the head with this book. Behave, behave. That's not how you should act. You need to live right. You need to try harder, try harder. And you're like, I'm worn out. I can't do it. Right. And you learned today that this wasn't given so that you could just jump through all these hoops and try and impress God. It was to show you what you need him to do. I like what David Bruskis says. The Bible isn't a book about principles to live by. It's a book about a person to live for. The law points to Christ. And only Jesus can save you. Last week I shared this illustration. It must have helped a lot of people because people keep coming up to me talking to me about it. But imagine if God gives you an assignment. Be perfect. And he hands you this test packet and you open it up with everything that is required. All that you have to do to be perfect. And you start the test and it's, it feels like you're taking a trigonometry quiz in Chinese. You're just like, I can't do ever perfection. I can't, I don't even know what, and then time's up, and the test is up, and then you go before him, and you turn it in, and you get an F. You failed to be perfect, and and you failed your heavenly homework, and then Jesus walks over, and he looks at your F, and he erases your name, and he puts his name on your F. Then he has his heavenly work, and his paper is perfect. And he erases his name and writes your name and turns it in. You get his A, he gets your F. That's the gospel. If you're planning to walk up to God with your paper on Judgment Day, it won't go well for you. But if you ask Jesus to take your failure and set you free, then you're getting into heaven. Because of what he did, not because of what you did. The law is like the grading grading sheet that shows you how failed your test is, Christ came along to set us free. Cry out to Jesus to free you. I'll close with this quote. F.W. Borm again says this, Man has forever. What will he do with it now that he has it? That is the thing that matters. The New Testament differentiates sharply between everlasting existence, which is the lot of every man, and which may be a thing of shame and misery, and everlasting life, which is the glory of those who follow the Son of God. Listen, you have forever. God made you a being that will never stop being. You have forever. What will you do with it? Ask Jesus to set you free, and then you'll have better than eternal existence. You'll have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, what a hard word this is as we look into our sin and we see our heart filled with deadly poison. What bad news that is, and yet if we admit it's true, then the best news we've ever heard in the world comes to us, that Jesus came to take away our failure, to take away our sin, to pay our debt, to rescue us from the law. Jesus, thank you for fulfilling every single legal demand that was required of us. Thank you for living the perfect life. Thank you for offering us a gift that we could never earn, life with the Father for ages to come. Lord, I think of those who came into this church this morning and they feel ashamed, they feel guilty, they know their failure. They are are honest and they feel the weight of their depravity and they 
They don't think God would forgive a person like them. They don't think God could forgive a person like them after what they've done, after what they've said, after where they've been. They feel hopeless. And I pray that what the Bible says right now would give them courage to cry out, Jesus, set me free. Take my failure. Give me your perfection. And Lord, I think also of those who are blind to their own sin. They're minimizing it. They don't feel like they're that bad. They look down on other people. They think they're fine. They think they can just strut in front of you and show off how they've lived. And they are not telling the truth to themselves or to you. They've not yet admitted that their sin is fatal, dominant, that they're trapped, arrogant, hopeless. Lord, it's time for them to repent now before it's too late. So I just pray, Lord, that there would be some right now who in their own hearts would say this, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. You can say that in your own heart. Say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Lord, there are some who are praying and crying out to you right now and they can say, Jesus, set me free. Say it, Jesus, set me free. Take away my failure. Make me righteous in God's sight. Promise me paradise forever. Lord, for those who are opening their heart to you, for those who are turning from sin and repenting and admitting that they need to be saved, remind them that your promises are true. You will never leave them. You will never forsake them. Jesus, you went to prepare a place for them and they will be with you always, forever because of grace. Thank you, Jesus, for this awesome salvation. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.